Well, unfortunately, Alex is out sick this week, but the show must go on. We send him our best wishes. But our bu- our buddy Joe Resington's here from Late Night Linux and Two and a Half Admins. Joe, welcome to Self Hosted. Hey, Chris. Good to be here. I've never been on this show before. I was just thinking that when I was introducing you. I was thinking this must be his first time. It's good timing because I know you're kind of thinking about building a new NAS. So I think that's one of the things we'll get into. It is, but we should address a weird situation that's come up. Alex helped me out by coming on Two and a Half Admins. We recorded that weeks ago now. So as you're listening to this, that came out yesterday with Alex, even though he's sick now. It's crazy time math. Don't worry about it. But that explains why he's on Two and a Half Admins, but not this show. And I'm kind of uh, paying him back by coming here. It worked out, you know? And uh, when you record ahead, it means uh, you have time to get sick, apparently. I should think about that. Mm. So I've been rebuilding my home setup. It's been crazy. The short version is, is like weeks ago during my road trip, my Raspberry Pi 4 died. Yeah, totally unplanned. I had backups, but didn't have any replacement hardware. I tried doing like a swap where I swapped everything over to my backup Pi. It still didn't boot. And so I had to make the trip home in the last couple of weeks you know, while I was waiting for hardware without any of my gear. And it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible, but I've been I've been steadily rebuilding and it's get, it's at a pretty good spot now. So I feel like I'm on the end of a journey and you're just at the beginning of a journey. I know you need a new NAS box, but it sounds like you got some hardware. So tell us what your quandary is. Right. So I have currently got a Celeron J1800 box, passively cooled, totally silent, apart from the discs that spin in it. And that has been doing the job for me for a couple of years at this point. It was actually kindly donated to me by a late night Linux listener. So uh, that was really appreciated. It's got only four gigabytes of RAM in it, just a few disks, ZFS with a bit of replication. And it's working totally fine, except when I have to reboot it. So get this. I have no idea why, but the only way I can reboot that box is by hooking a monitor up, turning the monitor on, rebooting it. I can reboot it via SSH, no problem, but the monitor has to be there, plugged in and on. I have to wait for the AMI BIOS thing to come up and then it boots and no problem. Oh man, there is like a dummy video adapters you can get that make it look like a monitor signal is there and that sometimes will let them boot without actually having a monitor connected. But that must not be the only reason you want to replace it. I mean, it's probably getting a little long in the tooth. Well, yeah, and it makes me wonder, well, should I replace it with something a bit more powerful? It doesn't use much power in terms of electricity. We're talking about 30-something watts, I think, idle, and only a couple more under load because it's so underpowered that it's basically always under load, I think. (laughs) I've got an i5-9600K box, which is kind of my backup workstation box because my main workstation is the i9-9900K. And so it's almost a hot spare for me. I can just take the SSD out, stick it in the i5 box, and just get going again if anything goes wrong. And it also means that I've got a relatively powerful box to do just testing of distros and software. And, you know, I can just do anything I want on that and just not worry about it. That is nice. I miss having a really good test system because I've ended up putting all of my machines into some kind of use now. And I just don't have a machine to just throw a random distro on and play around. I think my question would be, because you've been living with this Celeron box for so long, do you plan to run applications like server-side applications on that machine do you want it to do more than it's currently doing well maybe maybe that's what i'm thinking at the moment it's not really that feasible to do it but 
if I had more power, then maybe I could start thinking about stuff that I want to do with it. And so this ties into the next situation, right? So I'm going to be moving and I'm going to have more space. So I'm going to actually have a TV finally, instead of just a 27-inch monitor, which is effectively my TV at the moment. That's just 1080p. So I bought a dirt cheap 4K TV that's 58 inches, 400 pounds from Costco in the UK. Uh, I don't know how they make it so cheap. Well, I do know how they make it so cheap by selling your data because it's a smart TV. But this thing is not getting connected to my network. Not even a VLAN, no way. (laughs) There you go. I'm thinking I can kind of kill two birds with one stone. There's no reason why I can't install a GUI, XFCE, let's say, on top of my server and have a NAS come TV box. But I've been testing the i5 box and it's kind of okay for most stuff at 4K. But trying to play actual 4K content, it kind of skips a few ways. It's just a bit laggy here and there. And I think it's too annoying to play 4K content. And so do I double them up and use that one? Or do I just have a separate NAS and a separate TV box? I know you have got way more experience with TV stuff. Are you still using the Shields for TV? I do have one left. Yeah, they've, they're getting a little long in the tooth because I have a second-gen Shield. And to NVIDIA's credit, they continue to update that thing. Really? I want to say it's been like four or five years, maybe. Wow. Yeah. The only issue is, is that it's now running like multiple versions of Android that it since it chipped. Mm. And so it's slow now. Yeah. It used to be my fastest set-top box, and it's now it feels kind of slow. But it is really overall been a solid device. The latest updates added ads to the Android UI, mm. which I'm not a fan of. So it's sort of like, you know, you dis- like you're saying, you disable the smart TV tracking, but is the situation much better on Android? Yeah, whereas a good old GNU slash Linux box, I know I'm in complete control of it. Yeah, I mean, Kodi is a good solution too. You know, it's, you could do something like that and you don't have to worry about it. That Where it really is nice is if you have multiple televisions because then all of a sudden, you know, you're into some kind of show with your significant other you're into episode seven in season three or whatever, and you watch in the one room and then you want to pick up some other night in another room and you want to be right where you left off. You want the metadata. You want it all organized by season. That's where it just becomes really nice to just do a jelly or a Plex. And then, you know, you just throw it all on the server. You load the app on the NVIDIA shield or whatever. And it really works pretty well. So that's the, that's the direction I chose to go in this latest build. I actually ended up with Plex again. Mm. just because it's just just a little bit smoother. The intro skipping's better. The hardware decoding works better for me. It's simpler to get the hardware decoding to work. I just could not get it working with Jellyfin. And if you have Intel QuickSync, it makes a big difference on the performance. It takes the load off of the CPU. I don't know. I didn't check to see if your CPU has that. I think it does because it's a ninth gen i5. Yeah, there's probably a good chance it does then. Yeah. Can I get that to work locally though? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it would run either like just with an installed application or uh, through a container. And then it would do the quick sync. It would re-encode the video and send it to wherever you're watching it. Right, because I don't have multiple TVs and multiple rooms where I want a TV. I just kind of want to do it all in one box if possible. You could have, you know, one setup. I, I definitely have seen this. One box, it's a NAS. It's also the Kodi box. It's connected directly to the television. And you just have a keyboard and, you know, one of those like RF keyboards, it also has a built-in trackpad. Mm. I've seen it. It works. And 
there's plenty of machine there because there's no like if you have a whole i5 sitting there doing doing your NAS, you might as well have it also doing other things. It just seems like yeah, you totally could. And the only problem is, do you want a PC next to your television? Well, it's going to go on a sideboard thing, the TV, and there's room in this IKEA sideboard that we've bought to put the uh, the PC. And what I was thinking is I can drill out the back of it and put a fan there and one in the bottom of it, one in the back of it, and get enough airflow to keep it cool. And it's otherwise just closed into a cupboard, so you won't even see it. Yeah, that I that now now you're talking. Now I'm on board. I like that idea. If it was me, I'd throw a little Odroid H3 in there because I, <laughs> I love that Odroid. I think that thing's the ultimate home PC, and it's got HDMI out. It's got a pretty good little processor on there. Make a good NAS. Yeah, but I've got this box already that is kind of a luxury because I've got a ton of laptops as well. I've got an IntraWare Apollo, which is kind of my secondary laptop. You could use that as a test machine. Well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, then I would do it. I, You know, uh, listener Jeff, who let us uh, very graciously stay at his place in uh, in Sacramento, he has that set up. He's, um, he's using Plasma Desktop if he needs to drop down to the desktop. You know, you could fire up Cody directly on it. It's it's running Samba file services and NFS and running a couple of containers for him and works great. And it's got a disk. It got a couple of disks in there to act as the NAS. So it's one PC doing all those things. And I think that's pretty easy to justify a power draw for and utility. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. The only thing is smooth 4K playback. So if anyone out there has got a suggestion for software I can run on top of Zubuntu, the LTS, then let me know. Either email the show or you can just tweet at me at Joe Rissington. Well, Joe, I've been re-gearing a lot of sensors and small little edge devices for my home network. Had to throw some of the old ones out, wanted to replace a few. And I decided this time around, I'm going to give Zigbee a try because Zigbee is an open source wireless and communication standard. It's pretty popular, actually. And it's going to be part of the new Matter standard as well. So I thought, all right, let's get on the Zigbee train. And I deployed sensors. I, you know, I probably spent a little more than I should. I, I do this sometimes. And I got everything all set up, got it all connected into Home Assistant. And now I've discovered about once every couple of days, several of the devices just drop off my Zigbee network. They just disappear. Right. Any idea why? I have a couple of theories. I think in part, a couple of them are pretty low power devices. And what I've learned is Zigbee uses 2.4 gigahertz. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in that thing. Microwaves, Wi-Fi. Yeah, I was going to say, does it drop out when you turn the microwave on it by any <laughs> chance? I don't know. Maybe that is it. Because actually one of them going out is an LED light strip in the kitchen. Now that I think about it. <laughs> the audience has kind of warned me about this because I've, I've gotten hints that, like, you got to get the right Zigbee adapter that has a really good antenna that is, like, sticking out from the box or something. Like, I've seen some hints about that, and I just ignored all that. And uh, I have a Zigbee antenna that hangs off of a USB hub that is actually mounted away from the uh, Home Assistant Yellow, but it seems to be not strong enough. And I think I, you know, now I think about it, it's in the cabinet with my Wi-Fi router. Mm. And I didn't even expect this problem because previously I've been using Z-Wave. Z-Wave is a proprietary standard, but Z-Wave operates at 915 megahertz in the United States. And while it is lower bit rate, I think anybody that's familiar with the old wireless phones knows that 900 megahertz just goes farther and goes through walls more 
And 900 megahertz is just less crowded. There's less going on at 900 megahertz these days. And so I just took for granted how well my Z-Wave network worked. I mean, rock solid. I'm talking devices way outside, you know, 100 feet outside, still connected and still reporting in. Run for a year off a battery. I kind of expected the same thing for Zigbee. And that has not been my experience. And man, it sucks because it's several devices. So it's a temperature sensor that's failing. It's supposed to be monitoring my water bay. And it's the light strip that's failing. So sometimes we do the like nighttime shutdown stuff. And I go to check on the kids and I realize, oh crap, this light strip's still on. Like the lights didn't turn off. Oh, it's disconnected. It's embarrassing. Destroys the family acceptance factor. Mm, yeah. So what I ended up kind of piecing together, and I'm still kind of figuring it out, is if you get, this is true with Z-Wave too, if you get like a smart plug that's constantly powered, they will most often act as a network repeater. And they will rebroadcast the network and kind of make up for these gaps. But I think you have to have a fair amount of them, like quite a bit. It has to be a pretty dense network of these. In Z-Wave, that, that also wasn't the case. But I think it's because the transmitters and some of these low-power devices are just really weak. And so you have to compensate by having a lot of, a lot of mesh coverage. But your house for a bus or an RV is big, but for a home, it's pretty small, right? So you shouldn't be having this problem with it. I mean, we do have a lot of Wi-Fi in the area. So maybe it's just a lot of radio noise. Maybe it's because it's in the booth with my Wi-Fi access point. Yeah. Do you have 2.4? I have a lot of my uh, IoT devices that are on Wi-Fi on the 2.4 network. Ah, uh, right. Hmm. But Zigbee can use another frequency, right? Yeah, I think there is. And I think there's also something with Thread that is going to be part of the new Matter standard that's going to help. So I feel like feel like there is solutions coming, but nothing that's here right now that I can use. So I'm just kind of going back to Z-Wave devices for now. For the most part, the Z-Wave stuff just works. It's just there's more Zigbee things than ever. I've been noticing just an increase in Zigbee devices. I think it's probably because of Matter. So I just picked up a new multi-sensor. I love these Z-Wave multi-sensors, and they have a brand new version. And here's something else I've noticed, is you really get what you pay for with these little edge IoT sensor devices. And I'll admit, this AOTech Multisensor 7, it's 70 bucks. And if you really think about it, you want one for every room. And this is expensive. Mm. But I have also been comparing these to $19 sensors and $30 sensors, $40 sensors, and none of them are as good. And none of them are as flexible. So it's just a solid, AOTech just made some solid Z-Wave devices. Are you sure that if you crack them all open, they're not going to look exactly the same? They do, yeah. <laughs> they probably do. Except for this one. I, I have cracked a couple of them open. And this one is, is actually pretty, it's pretty neat. Uh, it's, it's just, the problem is, like, I feel like Z-Wave's going away because Matter's becoming more and more of a thing. It uses Zigbee. I feel like Z-Wave's just getting abandoned. But it, I think, is 900 megahertz, I think, is the superior radio for this kind of stuff. Because you want it to be reliable, like a rock, right? You flip a switch, and you want it to immediately turn that light on, right? That's what you get with Z-Wave. Mm. You get real because its own. It takes it off your TCP/IP network, takes it off of the Wi-Fi, moves it off of 2.4 gigahertz, and puts it down on this super efficient 915 megahertz radio network. Just a gosh darn thing of beauty. So, anyways, I'll put a link to my multi-sensor that I really like in the show notes. Now, you weren't ever an Evernote user by any chance, were you? No. You lucked out. I'm, a, I'm more of a kind of SSH into my server and just nano a text file 
kind of guy, to be honest. I I started using Evernote way long time ago when like the iPhone was new and then kind of faded on it uh, because they just did all these different permutations of UI and technology. But my wife stuck with it. She really likes it. It's one of the few apps where you can throw a bunch of different kinds of data from pictures to PDFs to website clippings to notes, and it will index and OCR and tag it for you. And then years later, you can search for like RV exhaust, right? It'll show the PDF from the manufacturer that we put in there that talks about our exhaust system. Mm. It's really handy for that kind of stuff. Or you could take a picture of a business card and search that person's name and it'll find it, right? Because it does the optical character recognition stuff. But they, uh, they've been sold to a company called Bending Spoons. And Evernote says the acquisition should be completed in early 2023. And you'll, you'll love this one, Joe. They say uh, nothing's going to change. It's going to be a good investment. That's always what happens with acquisitions, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's usually actually a warning sign these days when they say that. I start to worry. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> they say nothing's going to change. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like this is... Uh, this is probably something we should look into on the show. So I kind of wanted to put a call out there. I'm curious if anybody has a self-hosted solution for something that kind of worked like Evernote, you know, a textual data store, you can index it, you can search it. It'll do the OCR of a PDF or a picture you throw in there. You know, maybe it'll even have an app on the phone that takes a picture or something and throws it in there. Ideally it has a phone app and a desktop app. And ideally it has sync and offline support. Uh, also ideally multi-user or some kind of sharing. So the wife could create a note and then share it with me and vice versa. And uh, I know I hear Obsidian already. People are writing Obsidian, but I just don't think that's going to have high wife approval factor. It sounds like you're looking for a unicorn here. That does not sound like it's even possible without a huge company behind it to have all those features. Yeah, I know Notion's an idea that, you know, it's again, but that you're right. Company behind that. There's a couple of other ones I've looked at recently, but yeah. Now, what you want to do is, right, you want to have a horrible mess of Telegram messages that you send to yourself and some Google Docs and some, like I said, just text files on a server somewhere, maybe on your NAS that you can't even remember which directory you put it in. That's the best way to do it. And then you just force yourself to remember things the hard way. And it's more <laughs> yeah, fun. There is a little bit of that approach currently for myself. The uh, random documents on my server thing kind of hits home because uh, I haven't restored, like I had this little web UI that would render the markdown files into like this web browser thing so I could view my notes, but I haven't reinstalled that since my new server setup because I just don't use it that much. But when I do need the notes, <laughs> I got SSH in, <laughs> I got to look it up in nano. <laughs> yeah. And then you can really top it off with some LibreOffice docs and some text files. So depending on whether you're actually at your desktop or SSH into somewhere. Well, maybe somebody out there can save me. Um, I do not want to do OneNote. I, I have heard that one quite a bit as well, but um, just not particularly interested in that ecosystem. And it would really be nice if it's something that I could self-host. I actually kind of feel like that's a requirement because otherwise, why not just stick with Evernote for a little bit longer until they really crash that shit? So let us know. Self-hosted.show slash contact. All right, Joe, how about we wrap it up with some feedback? I want to give a shout out for our Matrix rooms out there. We've been seen some growth in the meetup rooms. We have some dedicated rooms like a London Colony meetup room in honor of Joe being here. There's a Mumble Colony in there. There's a, one for Ohio, for folks going to Ohio Linux Fest. Matrix lets us create all kinds of rooms, so we do it. And you can find them all 
just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix for the deets on that. Every now and then you'll see a wild Joe in there too. Rumor has it he's in the Fediverse. Rumor has it, yeah, if you look carefully. <laughs> we got an email into the show from Belgium. Uh, Brain Damage writes in, Dear Chris and Alex and also Joe, uh, I've been listening to Self-Hosted since the start, looking forward to it every release day. So I monitor my stuff, and I've tried monitoring software like Nagios, Prometheus, currently trying out Zabbix, but none of them seem to just click with me. I'm wondering what you're using and why, and if you've ever considered switching to another option. And also for your European listeners, the German website, itsco.de, uh, most of the time has secondhand small form factor systems on sale. Yeah, I took a look and there's a bunch on there. We'll put a link to that in the show notes too. So this is a good option for people just starting their self-hosted journey. Greetings from Belgium. So uh, my answer is boring. It's just uptime, Kuma. And I wonder, do you have a favorite uptime tool, Joe? Yeah, I use Uptime Robot, which is free for as many domains as I've ever thrown at it. And I think it monitors every five minutes and sends you an email and then sends you an email when it's back up and tells you how long it was down for. It is very handy sometimes for my own sites, but really it's more handy for just watching some other sites and laughing at people who can't keep them up for very long a time. So that's good. So it gives you a report of their... uh... Of their downtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can see the percentage uptime that each domain has. And you can just stick any domain you want into it. Nice. All right. We'll put a link to Uptime Robot in the show notes show notes as well. And uh, I'll give a shout out to Uptime Kuma, uh, which we have running here. And there's a few other good ones out there, but those ones are just simple enough that they're easy to set up. They're kind of nice for the hobby level. Yeah. And Uptime Robot does have a paid tier. I've never needed to try it, but presumably it's better. I don't know. We got some big boosts this week, and we got a whole bunch, so we're going to read just a few on the show this week. The first one comes in from The Helpful Idiot, 320,001 sats, says, longtime listener, first-time caller. Well, thank you, Helpful Idiot. Very generous boost. He says, love the shows. I want to share my blog with you guys, thehelpfulidiot.com. It's nothing special, but it has a few examples of some of my home lab projects, which were inspired by your shows. My day job is an eye doctor, and he sent a video. Uh, behind his uh, wire guard, like an xCloud VM box, which might be in this picture on his website at helpfulidiot.com. There's some good stuff on here, including one that actually was very, which was actually kind of really up my alley, which are these uh, big outdoor decoration lights that he's integrated with Home Assistant. It's funny that he's an eye doctor and his cable management is an eyesore. Oh, calling him out. Calling him out. Well, at least it makes me feel better about mine. <laughs> Uh, C-Dubs boosted him with 40,404 sats using Boost CLI. So that all that was a series of boosts. I think I put it all in one, one big baller boost. He says, I put together a little 1U NixOS router. It's got multiple LANs and Wi-Fi set up with DHCP and NF tables. The Wi-Fi is wonky. Client connections just stop randomly. I wireguard proxy all of my traffic, but when I turn it on, nothing routes. It's probably my firewall. Not sure how to debug. I could use some tips. Well, C-Dubs, you got a lot going on on that one box, you know? And so I feel like Wi-Fi wonky, that's one issue. Client connection stopping randomly could be related to the Wi-Fi. That could be a third, or I mean, I'm sorry, a second issue. And then WireGuard not properly routing your traffic, that's at least your third issue, if not your fourth issue. I feel like what the, where I would start is I would probably try to break down each one of those into its own separate problem like i'd start with the wi-fi like what's the point of even fixing the routing and the firewall issue 
if your Wi-Fi isn't working. <laughs> so I'd probably start with the Wi-Fi, uh, figure out what's going on there, you know, check dmessage, run journal ctl-f, watch your log for a bit, see if you can catch it happening. Uh, I don't know. You got any thoughts, Joe? I think just what you said, really, try and break it down into systematic chunks that you can work on. Don't try and work on the whole thing at once because there's too much going on to do that. There's too many moving parts. Try one of the moving parts at a time and just work through it logically until you solve each problem and then the whole thing will work. I wonder too, C-dubs, if you're on a later Linux kernel, like a 6.0.2 or later, because I swear, man, I've been having wonky Wi-Fi issues on the later, more recent 6 series kernels. I don't know how long you've had that NIC system installed, but if you could roll back to like 5.18, I would give that a try and see what happens too for your, for your Wi-Fi issues. Because I have a, uh, I have a machine that is, actually I have two laptops that are having really wonky Wi-Fi. One's not connecting reliably, reliably and the other is experiencing really long latency at different parts of the network that just doesn't really make sense. Like sometimes several hops outside my direct LAN, one laptop that's having Wi-Fi issues will have four, five, 600 milliseconds on a route, and all of the other machines on the LAN have no problem with that one, with that one hop. It's, I'm having the weirdest problems, and it's been since the later six series kernels. Yeah, or you could just try Ubuntu or something rather than a fancy OS like NixOS. Could always try a live session. That's actually a pretty good tip. Try a live session. See if you have some of the same routing or uh, some of the same Wi-Fi issues in the live session with a different OS, maybe an older kernel. <laughs> yeah, or dig out an old SSD or something, install it on that and just boot off that temporarily. Optimus Gray boosted in with some Grandpa Ducks, 22,222 sats. He says, I need your help. I'm an anti-Googler. I just don't like being the product of a company that's like the thing that's being sold. So when I hear this great tool is free to use and it makes everyone's life better, my radar gets lit up. Tailscale, a great tool, but a company that's not looking to make money, I don't understand. P2P connects are very cheap, so they don't need much. But my radar is up for something am I not seeing. I just don't like connections to everything on my network, so my radar is going off. I know they sponsor JB, but I wanted your input. That's a fair question, and I think it's one that Tailscale gets enough that they did a blog post about how they make money and you know how they built their network. Uh, to make it sustainable, because I think that's a common question. So, where uh, you know, the short version is where they make money is if you want to have more than 20 devices that get connected to that land, you got to pay. Yeah, which is a pretty good business model. I mean, they sponsor my shows as well, so I'm somewhat biased here, but it seems like your classic business model, give away just enough to get people hooked, and then, you know, you're using it on five, six, ten devices on your LAN, and then you go into work and talk about how great it is, and then suddenly... You, on two or 300 devices. Yeah, it's kind of the Dropbox idea too, right? Dropbox used to give away like five gigs for free. So everybody could just start sharing files with up to five gigs and they would spread it around. Yeah, but the advantage here is that if you are just a hobbyist, you can just take advantage of it for free and let all the corporate customers pay for you. Yeah, and he really nailed it there. The reason the reason for that is because they are peer-to-peer. -peer. So you're, when you're communicating with another machine on the Tailscale network, you're talking directly through it. You're not you're not routing through the Tailscale servers. The Tailscale servers come in for the authentication backplane that kind of authorizes your single sign-on provider to get access to that network. And then it like basically then authorizes the machine to have a key and then it gets access to the network. That key expires from time to time and you have to re-authenticate uh, or you can set some not to expire as well. And if you ever have to do that with more than 20 machines, then you end up becoming a, 
a paid Tailscale user. Rapid Mustang also boosted in with a McDuck row of Grandpa Ducks, 22,222 sats. I learned about you guys uh, from when you're on Level 1 Techs. Started listening and really enjoyed it. Now I listen to all the JB shows. Glad to give back now. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. You know, I think I think we got to have Wendell on again. I've gotten a few notes about that. Check in with Wendell and see what he's been up to. See how his self-hosting setup is going. See what's changed about it. Maybe find out what he's doing differently in 2023. Uh, thank you, Rapid Mustang. And thank you also. We got we got a lot more boosts in. Uh, so just a couple of random call outs. We got 67,000 th- 67, sats from uh, Mooton's Corral. Cur- <laughs> I think I put that in there just to see if I think I put that in there. I remember now to see if I could pronounce it. Now I'm realizing I could not. Uh, they just say hi. 911 sats from uh, Noob. He says it's his very first boot, boost ever. We got a couple of double boosts came together. Double elite sats, 2,674 sats from Sir Lurks a lot. Was uh, listening live last week and wanted to send some support in. We got 9,709 sats from Zerno. Just trying out Breeze for the first time. 50,000 sats from Enutech. Throwing some love our way. He's a 14-year self-hosting vet, he said, as well. Thank you, Enutech. Your support across the shows has been appreciated. And we got 119,999 sats from WM. He was on a series of boosts across all the shows, spraying some sats, and he wanted to spray some love over at self-hosted. Thank you, everybody else who boosted in. We'll read some of those in the post-show, I suspect. If you'd like to boost into the show, go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. And special geek cred if you figure out how to do it with Boost CLI. That, that is a freaking setup. Joe, tell people where they can uh, find you after uh, they get done listening to this here show. So either latenightlinux.com or 2.5admins.com. There you go. And you can catch Alex on 2.5admins. And uh, then uh, get all caught up. And then join us over in our Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord. Joe, it's good to catch up with you. Good to hear from you. Thanks for filling in for Alex. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you, everybody, for listening. That was selfhosted.show slash 84. You know, Chris, I've been fully radicalized into the church of ZFS. Oh, I bet. It's taken two and a half years, funnily enough, of doing two and a half admins with Jim and Alan, going on about it constantly. But I've, I just, I've seen the light. I just, anyone who will listen, I will tell them about how great ZFS is, snapshots, Jim's tools, Sanoid and Syncoid. It's, I just, I know it annoys people who are really into ButterFS, <laughs> but ZFS is just the best. Yeah. Yeah. It might be. You know what? It might be. Yeah. I, I, I love it too. I mean, I think I end up talking more about ButterFS because I'm like, nobody else is talking about it. Yeah. But there's a reason why no one else is talking about it. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I feel like where I find ZFS really useful is like our big set of data here in the studio. That's all on ZFS. But then like the OS that boots that that system, like the the root file system, that's ButterFS. And that's all that setup has been really solid because we still get snapshots and we use compression a little bit. But we also have that built-in kernel module. So like everything always starts every time. And we don't have much breakage anymore. You know, it used to be back in the day you do your kernel updates and there's a shot that ZFS wouldn't load. That's not much of a problem anymore. Or like, you know, another place where I found it kind of useful is on my Raspberry Pis, especially when I wanted to have multiple disks hanging off the USB bus. <laughs> Excellent idea. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's like, I just don't think I have the overhead to run ZFS on that thing, you know? 
And so ButterFS makes it stupid scary easy to just combine multiple drives as one big volume. So I just slammed them all together and attached it to my Raspberry Pi. And it, you know, it worked for years. That, funny enough, that's never what popped. It was the SD card that <laughs> finally popped because I'd forgotten that I'd set the SD card up, I think for boot or something. But that, uh, you know, that was my mistake. So yeah, I mean, I, I do agree for my data, for like my big, you know, my big data set, that's CFS. But then for like the OS drive or on my Raspberry Pi for like my Plex files, that kind of stuff, I've been using ButterFS. But you know, I'm an as. I have my main source of truth, my uh, ZFS pool uh, with the various data sets on it. And uh, I have that replicating to another ZFS pool. But I also have a third disk, which is EXT4, that just gets good old-fashioned R-Sync backups to because, you know, why not hedge your bets? And I've also got, uh, I think, a, a FAT32 disk as well, USB just in case, just like, you know, if my house was burning down and I could only grab one thing. You grab that. Grab that little two and a half inch USB disc. And that's got all the really, really important stuff on it. I've thought about that. You know, I've also been in the back of my mind. I've dreamt. I'd never think I'll have time, but I've dreamt of like a low power PC that sits in the trunk of my car. And when it gets close to home, it connects to the Wi-Fi network and it does an R-Sync of like all my important stuff to just some disc in there. And then it shuts it all down. So it's not taking power and it's not spinning but like it's it's up and running when i park somehow and it just does it all automatically and then if i ever had to like run i jump in that car and i've already got like a snapshot of all my data right there good to go i wonder if you could get a pi pico or something that you could run off a battery maybe that could then send a wake on land signal i don't know how that would work though yeah yeah i don't know how i'd trigger it to know i was home unless i just Went the easy way and just had like a button or or something that I just pressed up front as I was getting out of the car to basically just boot up and sync. Yeah, because shutting it down, that's the easy part, right? As soon as it's done, just turn off. But just getting it on in the first place, that's the real challenge now. Yep, the go drive. 